So look, um, welcome to Radio Fix. This is Simon Andrews. We've just started doing a sort of audio dimension to our weekly newsletter. Um, trying to find really interesting people to talk with, and we've aced out this time with Tom Goodwin. So I think everyone knows through spiky tweets and provocative <laughs> thinking presentations. Um, and we're going to talk about you know why digital hasn't fulfilled its promise in lots of ways, but through the lens of marketing and business, which I think we both come from. And also to touch on you know agencies. Are they the culprit? Are they the way to solve it? What do agencies you know have a role in here? And well, and I think we can get a good conversation going from there. Uh, so I'm here hopefully to be interesting and provocative. Um, I've spent nearly 20 years now around the advertising space working in all manner of different agencies doing slightly different stuff. Uh, and I think I'm a kind of grumpy, grumpy optimist. Uh, so I'm here sort of power, you know, excited about what's possible and frustrated about what's happening. All right. So, so Tom, welcome to the Ministry of Sound in London. Um, appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come and chat to us. Um, I think it's interesting... I go with the grumpy old man part of it. You don't, you know, you, <laughs> grumpy younger man. But just talk to me a little bit about what you think it is that sort of drives that grumpiness, that frustration. Uh, it's being extremely optimistic and it's being very imaginative maybe and just getting a really strong sense of what actually could be done. Um, so I'm quite lucky in that I get to travel around the world and go to interesting places uh, and there are times when you experience things that are incredibly magical. You know, we can all remember the first time we used an iPhone and it was kind of yeah. uh, like a gift from above. Uh, we can all remember the first time we used Uber or Lyft and it just seemed remarkable. And when you have these incredible experiences where everything seems to work really well, um, it's very hard to live in that world and a reality where lots of stuff doesn't work. So it seems extraordinary to me that we might lose a plane from Malaysian Airlines. Uh, it seems bizarre to me that I need to wait for a firmware update before I can turn on some lights in my house. Um, so I think not, not that I care that much about my uh, public profile or my demeanor or, or I think about it that much. But I think a lot of the grumpiness comes from the frustration uh, driven by enough knowledge to know what things could be like um, and enough knowledge about why things are not like that. Uh, and a sense that by articulating those things, it may help us get to a better place. I think that one of the things I find interesting is that the people are sort of ahead of the experts. If yeah. you sit in this coffee bar and watch what people are doing with their phone, because they don't bother with laptops, they don't yeah. have laptops on hand, and they're doing everything on their phone and used to doing that. And you always sit with clients and sort of, have you ever seen how easy it is to order an Uber? <laughs> and why don't you apply that to what you do? And we've got lots of people who've just taken what worked on the web in 2006 and just squeezed it onto a phone yeah. rather than making any big changes. Yeah, a big, um, I go through periods where I do quite a lot of speaking, and this week I've, I've done maybe eight or nine presentations. I'm really bored of my own voice, actually. <laughs> and something that keeps on coming out in these uh, presentations is this notion of thinking. Um, I honestly don't think anyone's thinking. Like, like it seems extraordinary, but I think um, the degree to which we don't move outside of our own reality and the degree to which we don't listen to people and observe people and challenge conventions and challenge assumptions is extraordinary. And I can't help but think the whole world um, seems reluctant to make anything... Uh, based on new thinking. Like we're so busy kind of talking about the pace of change and we're so busy talking about, you know, disrupt or die or 5G that we don't seem to ever take a step back and just think, wait a minute, what could I make now? What would be nice? What's actually possible at this precise moment in time? No one seems to be that enthusiastic by it. 
and we and we tend to do things in quite a conservative way. So we tend to take what we've done before, like you say, and sort of despeck it to the new stuff. So if we've made this amazing TV ad, then how can we remove the sound and make it smaller and shorter, and then put it on a phone? And then we'll call that like a video ad. Like no one's looking at this stuff being like, shit, this is amazing. Think of all this amazing stuff we can do. Well, we saw someone who said, oh, the TV ad doesn't leave that quality on the phone. So wait, wait a minute. The phone has more pixels than your best 19 screen from there. So you should be higher quality because you're close to it. And one of the things that I talk about quite a lot, I used to do talks, I used to say how many people have got a phone. Mm-hmm. And because you know, as, over the years, more and more people have them. <laughs> it's a stupid question to ask now. Yeah. But I was asked who's got a laptop. It's yeah. remarkable that everyone's got a laptop with them, and I have that. Yeah. You go around coffee shops in London, in Brooklyn, or whatever, yeah. everyone's sat with a laptop. And I think all the people who do the thinking in this space have all got MacBook Airs and sort of like revert back to that all the time. Yeah. So they don't have that urgency of, I've only got a Samsung S10, yeah. I need to make this work. And I think yeah. if you took the laptops away for six months, you might get a bit more um, action. Well, in what seems like the most uh, prosaic advice ever, I've never been in a single meeting room in the world that had a TV that was portrait in its um, in how it was hung on the wall. Yes. And therefore, we've already decided that the answers that we look at, we should look on a landscape TV. Um, and already, we probably subconsciously decided that the solution is in a a kind of landscape video or it's in a, a website that exists on a on a laptop um like I, I i have all sorts of weird side projects that i do and i'm not very good at doing them and often i make websites quite quickly uh, and often i'll i'll create this website very quickly you know do the website um on on the mac so it's obviously yeah. a, a kind of uh, a desktop version of a website then i'll put together the mobile one quite quickly send it out say you know what does everyone think of this is it okay am i embarrassing myself um, and I'll never have any criticism about the the desktop website. And then immediately I'll get lots of criticism about the mobile website. And then I'll look into the metrics and realize that actually 97% of people that yeah. visited the site visited on their phone. And for me, it was this afterthought. For me, I made the, the desktop website and then I just did the sort of mobile one later on by moving things around so it wasn't crap. Uh, and that's me. I mean, I'm supposed to be good at this stuff. Like I talk about this stuff for a living. Like you'd have thought I would be thinking differently. But this muscle memory is for us everywhere because of the devices we use. Yeah, and, and there's little things like the hamburger menu, the little three lines, which everyone yeah. uses on the top of the uh, mobile page from that. Yeah. So consumers have got no clue what that means. No. And Facebook did it and removed it. And they got a 20% increase in traffic to those other parts by saying menu and having better yeah. ways of doing it. So we, I think muscle memory is a good way of putting it. We fall into these traps. Yeah. And they never change. No. Yeah, so you're frustrating people, but you know, everyone sort of seems to be getting away with that. You know, if you had a shop that pissed people off because yeah. the way it was organised, it would get sorted quite quickly. <laughs> but on a website or something digital, but it's much easier to change and rearrange yeah, and buying, check out yeah. of yeah. the la- layout of where the women's dresses are. It doesn't seem to get changed at all. You make a, a nice point in that it's actually this simple stuff as well. You know, like in theory, my job is to go around and advise our clients what their voice strategy should be or how they should think about wearables or what the Internet of Things means to their um, content insurance business. And actually, um, it's amazing how we haven't got to grips with basic functions on a smartphone yet. Um, this, this won't be a protracted moan, but um, every single thing that you are able to buy on, in the universe, you should be able to pay for with Apple Pay or with yes. Google Pay or with Samsung Pay or with uh, Amazon Pay within a second. And uh, I've never seen we- uh, Wi-Fi you can buy from a public space with that. And therefore, I- I'm not going to type in my details. I'm not going to bother to find my credit card to get Wi-Fi. I'm just going to connect to my phone. But 
if it was possible for me to buy that in a second, I would buy that every time and it would be faster and people would make lots of money from me and I would be quite happy about that. We talk a lot, you know, the whole DTC space is really interesting. People launching their Shopify stores and whatever. You find loads of them don't have Apple Pay on there. Yeah. I think Deliveroo told us they put it in with two months of the launch and got 25% increase in orders. So it's just so easy because it populates your address, all the things when you're ordering pizza you care about. You know, they're simple, but people still don't do it because Shopify, I don't think, make it a standard. This actually makes me extremely angry uh, because when I make these complaints about uh, apps or sites or um, services not taking Apple Pay, uh, people look at me like I'm kind of moaning and that this is this kind of 1% problem and it's a sign of privilege and Tom being tech-centric and you know living in New York and not really understanding that most people don't care about this stuff. And I don't have any data ever to support this, but my, my fundamental principle is actually this isn't small and that everyone wants to do things quickly. And this isn't kind of pandering to the needs of fancy people that are a bit stuck up their own ass. This is just normal people that can't be asked to get off their sofa and get their credit card. And like there is just a ridiculous amount of money to be made in a way that everyone is quite happy about and in a way that costs people about an hour of a junior programmer's time. And somehow when I make complaints about that, people think I'm being a bit frivolous and tech-centric and a bit outrageous or something. I, I think it's back to the point. People are ahead of us. You know, we talk to people in sort of focus groups, you know, and it's about putting your credit card number in. It's, well, you know, why would I type my 16-digit number and get it wrong because the thumbs are too big? Yeah. I know that Uber's shown me that you just take a picture of your credit card and yeah. it does it automatically. So if Uber can do that, why can't you do yeah. that? Or even just Apple. I mean, I, I now sell my book online and I, uh, I made the website myself in, in about 45 minutes and one glass of red wine. And I have no idea how to make a website and I have no idea how to take people's money and I have no idea how to set up the tax structure for a, an export business. And I just went on Shopify, um, removed every single optional extra, de-scoped it to the point where it only sold one thing. And it literally took me 45 minutes. I'm making no money whatsoever from it, but I learned a lot in the process of yeah. doing it. And it makes you realize if I can do it you know, after a glass of red wine, like I think that Walmart should be able to do this. I'd like to think that Argos are capable of this. Like Debenham should probably be up there. Um, but yet somehow these big companies don't seem to be able to do it. So we find it's, you know, it's somebody else's job. So we're talking about the conversation. You know, the best way, you know, to the best way to improve radically the effects of your media spend yeah. is to halve basket abandonment. Yeah. Well, that's not our job. Well, yeah, but that's impacting what you're doing for your living and make a huge difference. You'd work out that people sort of tend to disappear when there's a voucher code box there. They go look for a voucher code and don't come back. Yeah. Take the voucher code box out, and you know, and people complete the um, transaction. There's simple things to be done, but it's always it's somebody else's job. Um, and you find, I think, you know, when you do your own website, you solve the problem yourself. You don't yeah. think, I'll leave that for somebody else. And a lot of this is because, I guess, this stuff is, uh, in theory, it's quite new. Like We do, about half the time when I speak to people, I feel like we're not giving ourselves enough credit for how new some of this behavior is. Um, and then about half the time when I speak to people, I think we're giving ourselves way too much um, forgiveness for how old this stuff is because actually we have been buying things from the internet en masse since about 2002 and it's not a trend that came from nowhere and wasn't easy to predict and it hasn't gone exponential it's actually a very linear journey where it's been incredibly obvious since about 2005 that we were going to buy lots and lots of stuff on the internet and then it's been incredibly obvious for a long time we're going to spend lots of money on our phones and then somehow companies act like this has come from nowhere <laughs> you know it's some kind of black swan event and the reality is that 
if you imagine a uh, fashion retailer, like if you imagine how much money they spend on physical merchandising of their stores and how many people they employ there, and if you imagine how many people they spend on designing uh, the bag design, the shopping bag that you might take take with you, imagine how many people they have working on their POS system, imagine how many people they have working on the uh, design of the cashier's desk and how many people they spend, how much money they spend figuring out the right kind of number of staff to employ and when they employ them and what the open sign should look like and what the window should look like. And then you transfer that same uh, variety of uh, skills and the, the amount of time that needs to be spent to the this kind of virtual equivalent. And there's probably five people stuck in a loft somewhere that aren't paid that well who are quite grumpy about their jobs. Um, who are undertaking all of this stuff themselves, and they're just making stuff up. So what should merchandising look like on the internet? I don't know. We'll just copy what Amazon does. What should the shopping cart look like? I don't know. We'll just copy what Argos does. No one's getting excited by this stuff. I think you're right. Everyone just takes, you know, who did something, we'll copy that from there. So Amazon is a terrible experience. Works Awful, incredibly well absolutely for the terrible. Finding stuff's really hard. It's a great quote from the guy... I think it's Ian Rogers, who's the head of digital at LVMH. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, yeah. Really interesting, Apple background. Yeah. He says, it's not my job to make um, luxury work in e-commerce. It's my job to make e-commerce luxurious. Yeah. And you look at what they've done with the Bon Marche site, you know, it starts to feel like there's something experiential there. Yeah. And you might drop a thousand pounds for something because of yeah. that, because it's worth it. Rather than it's a little square image that, you know, is optimized for Google shopping, even though it's a thousand pound bag. <laughs> but I don't get why, like, everyone seems to have the body language that suggests they wish the internet didn't happen on on their watch in a way like um you know you get the feeling that if you work in a hotel there's probably so many people that are really enthusiastic about what a lobby should look like but no one's enthusiastic about what the process of telling someone their room is ready is like and i I would love us to just look at all of these spaces and all of this um screen space and all of these messages we can send to people and get really enthusiastic about what it could feel like even tiny, this is a sort of small thing that hit me this week, but the way that when you make a payment with contactless payment, the noise you get when your payment has been accepted is exactly the same noise that you get if it's been rejected. Like, would it be that hard just to have a kind of beautiful, like, ding-dong sound, which is the sound that you just um, have the ability now to walk out of the store with a croissant without being arrested? Like, would it be that hard to look at the shopping cart and think, how can this feel like the same experience of someone putting ribbons on a bag? Would it be that hard if when things arrived in your house and you opened up this pair of $200 jeans that you just bought that it looked like it was packed by someone that gave a shit rather than this sort of dusty box that comes from some crap warehouse because the head of procurement didn't think this mattered. Like, there is so much opportunity for us to get excited by this stuff. And one other thing that really needs to happen, and it, it blows my mind that this hasn't, is we've taken every single thing that we've ever sold before um, and we can now sell it through the internet. But at no point have we really rethought what it is that we are selling. So no one's taken... Uh, a box of uh, I know shampoo. No one's taken the 250 milliliter bottle of uh, Pantene shampoo and then thought, wait a minute, like it doesn't need to look the same as it does. It doesn't need to have shelf appeal. Why isn't it not rectangle? Why don't we create it in a way where it can actually fit through someone's letterbox? Why don't we have it so it's called like a month supply of shampoo? Why don't we like rethink the stuff that we're selling um, as well as actually. Um, 
you know, sell it in new ways. So why don't we have wine that you can post through someone's letterbox? Why don't we have cream cakes that you can fit and they'll stay fresh even if the room is at kind of room temperature? Like, no one's thinking about this stuff at I, all. I think you're right. The theatre sort of missing. Great retailers understand it's theatre make the experience yeah. really well. No one's applied that. Very few people have applied that. I think that rethinking about packaging is really interesting. Yeah. That... Um, the guys who did Greys came out of the original Love Film people because they realised the box they're sending CDs in, you could fill with nuts or raisins or whatever from there. And, and no one's ever did, that sort of jump ten years ago was remarkable. Yeah. But no one's done anything similar since that point from there. No, and, and again, it comes down to I think uh, excitement. Like I, I don't get the feeling that companies are really investing in this stuff beyond the basics. Uh, I had a really interesting conversation with someone, and I should probably keep their name and their company secret. Uh, but they were talking about the fact that when they were looking, it's a big fashion retailer, like a very big fashion retailer, and this guy is a complete genius and lovely. And he was saying that when they realized they needed to set up an e-commerce department, they looked around their current staff uh, and they found people that the most sort of technically savvy um, because they felt it was far more important that these people understood the culture of that business than that they were particularly good at technology. Yes. So the entire e-commerce department for many, many years, maybe still today, uh, is led by people that basically have no fucking idea how to do e-commerce, but know quite a lot about the spirit and the culture of that particular brand. And it makes me realize that for a long time, we've seen digital as being a kind of service department. Like it kind of comes from an age where the IT department would install fax machines yeah, and then yeah. they would mend photocopiers and there would be the people that you'd go to if your Windows software wasn't working. And we kind of treat it a bit like procurement or uh, the, main, the people that arrange the cleaners' contracts. Like we think of it as a cost center. And by now, it's obvious that it shouldn't be. By now, it's obvious that it's just the very future of all of our businesses and our strategy for this is vital. But I still think companies have this kind of mindset that this is uh, the IT department and they're the people that smell a bit funny sometimes and that they're a bit socially awkward and it doesn't matter that much as long as it still works. But and I that th needs to change. I think you're exactly right. I think that tech is a bit that really sort of, you know, has stuck with digital and hold it back. I remember... You know, all the time remember talking about television as the one ever before digital. No one ever said, I wonder how cathode ray technology works. Yeah. Whatever. It, just, it was a TV and <laughs> yeah. it worked. Yeah. But, you know, suddenly, oh, are you doing this on um, SVOD or AVOD or what? Yeah. Is it on Android or... Yeah. Those things don't matter. You still want, you know, and you put it in your book really well, it's about empathy rather than technology. Yes. You can find people who can do the nuts and bolts. And it's easy now, as you point out, a glass yeah. of red wine, you can build up. Or it's like, we'd have charged 100 grand for that in 1995 because yeah. it was a very complicated <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's not anymore. Yeah. So it's the empathy. I'm, sorry, I'm trying to sell something. I want someone to feel this is a magical experience. I'm about to pay $100 for a pair of jeans. It's going to be great throughout the process. Yeah. Not clicked here, clicked that. And, yeah. You know, I think, I mean, we haven't really played around with this technology enough because uh, I think it was around about 2011 I got a job in uh, Huge in Los Angeles and uh, I was tasked with making a, uh, it was called a companion app for a TV show. Uh, so apps were relatively new. This idea of a, a second screen yeah. for a TV show is quite new. And I worked with very good people, actually. Huge had a number of unbelievably talented people. And I'd, um, I didn't really know what was possible. Like, I didn't really know how apps worked. I didn't really know how the sort of structure worked. So I would sort of come up with these quite naive ideas. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was like a map of the world and then you could uh, pull through the videos from the TV series? Like, is that possible? And the person would be like, yeah, yeah, that's actually really easy. And then I'd sort of say, well, is there a way that, uh, I don't know, you could sort of pre-populate this based on uh, what you've done before in your browsing history? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's pretty easy. 
And I think over the time of me working on this app with this uh, one skilled programmer for about six months, I probably came up with 24 ideas. They weren't amazingly good ideas, but every single thing that I suggested, the person said, yeah, that's really easy. And it makes you realize that we're kind of used to things being difficult and we're kind of used to uh, uh, just assuming that production is expensive. And actually having the having the kind of lack of knowledge, which allows you to suggest things that are not limited by your assumption that's about what is possible is like almost the greatest skill you could have. So it's actually people that understand people and are quite kind of creative and imaginative and ambitious, working with the people that know how to make it happen. That's the kind of dream combo in a way. Well, I think so. You talked about at the start of the conversation. It's avoiding that. Let's convert what we've got to fit on here. Yeah. You know, you, yes, do that, but that feels like a quite a you know, narrow way of doing it. Yeah. You know, and you look at the history of media, you know, movies invented the close-up as a way of being different from theatre. Yeah. Television invented different, you know. So we've found ways of moving those things on. You don't feel digital, we've really moved them on in an awful long way yet. Not not within the majority of experiences. I mean, there are there are occasionally magical things that happen. And maybe I'm a bit sad with how much I uh, I love it. But um, and I, I signed up with Monzo the other day. So I signed up with Monzo the other day. And I'm aware that Monzo is not some tr- crazy, trendy new company you've never heard of. But I live in America and I spend a bit of time here so I can claim a bank account and uh the act of signing up was so quick and so smooth and so empathetic and so human that it made me realize that that was worth more to me as a customer than knowing that there were a thousand branches each with doric columns and marble lobbies and a, a kind of hugely expensive vault in the corner like actually these new touch points that happen in lots of new places and on different screens are incredibly important. And again, uh, people don't realise how exciting this is. I think one that's really interesting, that salmon pink card is such a genius because when you pull that out yeah. to pay contact list, everyone's like, oh, you've got a Monzo. Oh, yeah. what is that? Yeah. No one does that with anyone else's bank card from there. Yeah. Like, Apple are going to try and do it with, with their card as well. But that Monzo nails that sort of word of mouth because you don't have a conversation about it. Oh, it's a good bank. Yeah. Yes. And it's dead simple to do from there. Yeah. But we've done loads of work on banking over the years and used to go around and talk to banks about things like, why can't I take a picture of my check to pay and you know, I take the photo? Uh, there's no demand for those sorts of things. And they missed the idea that you could do theatre, just do that, and you would look technologically yeah. advanced. I would just say on. there's no demand for this thing that's never existed is probably the most frustrating thing I've ever heard, where there is this presumption right now that if people are not behaving in a certain way, that means that we can't get them to. So the number of banks that are quite smug about their market position because they have this spurious statistic that you're more likely to get divorced and change your yeah. bank. Like, that was totally fine until you can sign up for a Monzo account like on the way to Heathrow Airport and you've actually done it within the first three minutes of your journey. Like when these when things when, when new things arrive, people behave in radically different ways. So we, we all know that you don't get in a stranger's car and you don't sleep on a stranger's couch until Uber and Airbnb appear and then you're suddenly doing it. And similarly, so we, we have this logic that if people aren't behaving that way, they never will, which kills me. But we also have this logic that if people are behaving this certain way, then that means that we must have designed it perfectly. So we the number of conversations I have with people about Amazon, where I say Amazon is the worst shopping experience you could ever imagine. And they are the worst retailers you could ever imagine. And they have no idea how to curate and they have no idea why people buy things. And then people turn around to me and say, well, look, they were worth a trillion dollars. Like you don't get that for nothing. And we, we afford these companies like so much um, respect despite the fact that they don't know what they're doing, I think. So you're in the States, you've been around the Amazon stores, which are all underwhelming, they're aren't they? absolutely terrible. Like, you, you couldn't... 
like like if there was any other retailer on the planet that did what Amazon did, they would just be hauled over the coals for being idiotic. They have a, they have a little section in their stores called Forced Nar Review Area. And on this section are a completely random assortment of things that you would never dream about buying in a store that just happened to some reason have got over four stars. And it's like, well, the whole point of a store is that you employ buyers and that it's their job to test stuff and to know what's good. And therefore, everything in your store should be four stars. The idea that there's an implication there that everything everything else in the store is a bit crap, but they have no idea what they're doing at all. We went to the bookshop with my son. He said, oh, it's great, they've got a coffee shop. I said, well, New York and London used to be full of coffee shops and bookstores. It was fantastic. You've now got a rubbish little bookstore. I can't work out where anything is. And a crappy coffee store next to it. Yeah. They will get it right. I think the Amazon, they will eventually get it right. They're lots of working lots of Maybe. different things. But you sort of feel it shouldn't take this long. No. And we've got, in London, we had this great thing. So Sainsbury's, the store that's underneath their head office in High Hoban, yeah. they converted to um, Tillless about three months yeah. ago. So you just go in there with the app and buy everything from us. Because what happened was there's one person in there. They've been queued up to pay that person. Because I don't <laughs> want to walk around scanning my own items and whatever yeah. from there. They've put the tills back. Yeah. You're not respecting how people want to shop. You're not giving an advantage. Yeah. There's no nothing in it for me. I've outsourced all the shop assistant job to you yeah. and fired the little old lady who used to do that job. Yeah. That's a benefit to their P&L. It's not a benefit to me. I think we're at this um, weird time where it seems that our entire broad world of marketing is full of people that kind of speak human and then there are people that get code and it's like there's this huge bridge between the two. And um, I want to say that like it's worth trying this stuff. Like it's great to do a trial of uh, you know self checkout tills, and it's great to uh, do a trial where there's also a human being that you train to be really nice and friendly. And it's nice to try this stuff. But a lot of these things are somewhat predictable. Like I, like I can look at any um, pretty much every single digital kiosk that exists in the world right now, whether it's a KFC, whether it's a big vending machine with um, lots of products, whether it's um, the digital kiosks that you check into at airports. Yeah. And I look at the, the, the consumer flow. And I, I'm not a coder, as I said before, and I've never really done sort of user design work and I've never held focus groups with people. But I know that me and you and like two other people in the pub, within about 15 minutes could come up with a better user flow than every single one of these things. Like the fact that you have to decide, uh, you have to tell the machine what form of payment you're going to use before you then use that form of payment. Like that, that's just one step that doesn't need to exist. And again, we can look at this and be like, oh, Tom's being a bit of a twat and he's thinking he's very precious with his time and normal people don't think this way. But I honestly think that these tiny little steps, like these bits of delight to have like a menu on these screens that look like someone got excited about that stuff, that kind of stuff matters like i now shop at some coffee shops because in the u.s because they take contactless and i just know that it's going to be a little bit nicer to make my payment there than the one where they swipe your card and then you have to scribble your name on a piece of paper and i'm not normal but these things are so important and we need these people that know enough about human psychology and behavioral economics and you know the kind of uh, the intricacies and the weirdness of people, but they also know enough, know enough about code and technology to know that it doesn't have to be as bad as it is. Well, I sort of collect stories when people sort of must fight back. So there's a great stat in the UK that because of the unexpected object in the bagging area and all that frustration you have to have, <laughs> so sales of avocados have um, plummeted. Because what people do, they go buy avocados, yeah. but on the button when you've got to say what vegetable it is, they press carrot. <laughs> So they're paying 5p for a two-pound <laughs> avocado because the system's set up that way. Because they know they're the same way. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. There's a huge spike in you know, people just not paying for a card. <laughs> it's like, well, fair game to them. You know, if you're giving me a stupid system that, yeah. right, now I'm going to pay my card. I've swiped my card. It says, no, wait until you've told me you're going to pay my card. Yeah. That's a nonsense. Yeah. I think that it come, where things come from drives it. I was talking to someone about out of home and talking about you know, digital out of home now is great, but no one's doing anything interesting with it. Yeah. But I explained that the logic behind digital out of home and the force behind it is not to make interesting ads for their advertisers, it's to save people in vans to have to climb ladders and pay stuff. So yeah. the justification for turning them all digital is you cost you much less than posting in the old way from there. And then, oh wait a minute, if we've done that, we can now make wonderful animated ads. That bit hasn't happened yet because the logic and the, 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 the drive behind it came from somebody else. Well, sometimes I the think, wrong people are in charge. Yeah, I think you've been a bit unfair there because I've had a bit of access to this where um, around about 2007, uh, digital outdoor panels became quite big in London. Uh, and I was, uh, I think I was an account manager on Nokia at the time, and I was really excited about what we could do. Um, and actually, the digital media owners were very, very excited. So they would uh, come and present to us. I can't remember what it was called, but they had some sort of innovation session where they were yeah. talking about what could be done on the screens. Uh, and the creatives didn't want to come because they were too busy writing a TV script. So I was there, and I got really enthusiastic about it. And to cut a long story short, it was impossible to get any proper creative to spend any time thinking about it. Uh, and the outdoor media agencies who own this space had already figured out that that was probably going to happen. So they set up their own little production yeah, department. Yeah. And the idea was that rather than getting a brief into the traffic department and briefing the creatives and whatnot, we would just give them little scraps. So we'd give them a kind of uh, a beautiful phone shot and we'd give them a bit of the TV ad. And then they'd sort of smudge something together that normally involved a bit of a shimmer. And uh, the problem has been, if you ask me, that no one, well, I'm just saying the same words again, but no one's got excited. No, one, no one's looked at these screens and gone, wait a minute, we can buy a specific time or we can buy a specific context. So we can buy the first really hot day that happens in the spring where all of a sudden like women wear like tank tops and look good and they also feel worried about how pasty they are. Or we could buy the kind of... Uh, you know, the, the the weekend before a bank holiday when you know that all the stores are going to have really long lines. Like, you could actually buy the, the day that, um, you know, the Brexit vote happened, yeah. or you could buy the day when there's a massive argument in Parliament or a day when there's strangely odd traffic congestion. Uh, like, no one's got excited about the fact you can buy moments. Like, no one's got excited about the fact you could actually create these ads based on things like real-time inventory. So if the Argos next door happens to have got too many barbecues, you know, they could actually suddenly use this as a chance to flog some of the barbecues they've got. Like, we've basically taken what was a poster and then thought, wait a minute, I guess if it moves a bit, people might look at it. So you're getting to a subject I wanted to get to because you work, you've got a fantastic job in the advertising industry. I've also worked in agencies. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the idea of an agency. And you <laughs> yeah. watch Mad Men, you know, all of that, Don Draper, fantastic, solving problems for people. Yet you look at 2019, you have this fantastic palette of things like digital out of home, like mobile screens, etc. Another talent in creative agencies appear to be anywhere close to it. And we've got a thing walking around asking people, so who does your mobile creative? Oh, some guys in Albania <laughs> do it overnight for yeah. free. Da, da. It's never yeah. it's the guys at Sarchi and Sarchi or Anomaly or um, you know, a fantastic agency. It's always somebody you know, is found from the media on it. So the magic doesn't happen because you're not asking the magicians to get involved. And that feels like a bit of a, you know, a strange situation we've got into. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're precisely describing the reality. And um, I don't have a very good explanation for it. Um, I think somehow in 2004, like it was all about the TV ads. 
And then in 2007, it was all about the TV ads. And in 2012, it was all about the TV ads. And I kind of presumed that at some point, you know, these creative brains would actually be on their phones in the evening and maybe they'd be on Snapchat or maybe they'd be on TikTok now or maybe they'd be buying things from Instagram. And at some point, it would have dawned on them that it's kind of cool. Like, it's, it'd be kind of nice to have, like, uh, an e-commerce app where you opened it up and the first thing it showed you was just, like, a beautiful three-dimensional image of something that you might want to buy. It'd be kind of cool if... Um, ads rather than saying here's uh new nivea visage son like find out more like read our founder's story like it'd be kind of nice if it would just said why don't you buy it now by pressing your thumb on the phone um and i can't explain for the life of me why no one seems to care so i think it's down to the fact that agents have never worked out how to get paid for the, what they do with the thinking they've always got paid for the thing that goes with the thinking the tv ad or whatever, and yeah. that business model. You know, so agents turn into factories. Okay, what we produce is TV ads. The answer to your problem, the TV ad, because they can get paid for that less than they used to do. Yeah, I think. I mean, um, I think there is a difference between uh, an explanation and an excuse, and I think that's a really good explanation. But I don't think it's a good excuse in that it's our job to be paid a lot of money. Um, and to be really smart and to really care about our clients' business and to make a difference to their bottom line. And the assumption has been for a long time that the way that happens is through TV ads and then print ads that go along with them nicely. Um, and I don't really care if we don't get paid for it. Like, I think it's it's our job to be proud of what we accomplish and it's our job to be sort of proud of what we can personally accomplish. Um, and uh, it's about time that we got excited by this stuff. Like, I do this sort of stuff for free on the side just because I like making things happen. And if you are drawn to a creative industry, then you should be drawn to this notion of of, of producing things that, that make you feel like a, a proud human being. So I share that, and you've also a bit cynical. I'm very naive. No, no, no. I, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd like to think that people, there's loads of clever people who are really good at solving these problems. They don't get put in front of them. Oh, yeah. I was talking with Rory Sutherland. He was just making the point that agencies still chase after people with big media budgets because that's who they think they should be working for. Yeah, they don't get paid on media commission anymore. So actually, it's just who's got a problem, maybe we can solve it, and having a different type of conversation. And Rory's, I think, quite good at finding people who have those different problems. Most agencies are not. They're still talking to the big CPGs who sort of think they need a TV commercial. Yeah, I think I don't want to be too transparent about my current job and situation, but I can say that this is probably the most frustrating uh, situation that ever exists in my job which is to think that somehow how much money people spend on media is particularly important. Um, and to think that what they spent in the past matters. I mean, the number of pitches you see for companies that are basically going bankrupt, that are spending less and less money on media every year. And you can kind of plot this line, you know, using American numbers. Like there are clients that used to spend a billion dollars a year. that then spent $500 million the next year. They've spent $100 million the next year. Really? Uh, and you know they're going out of business, uh, and you know that the clients are awful, and they're all stressed beyond imagination. Uh, and then we're actively excited about the notion to pitch to these people that are clearly not very good at their jobs and are about to be fired. Um, hopefully I was sufficiently anonymous there. Um, <laughs> and then there'll be these incredible companies that are doing remarkable stuff that are clearly well funded they're clearly going to get even more funded in series a uh, sorry series c and series d uh clearly going to ipo and you know because they might actually make money for once they'll be worth a fortune 
And I'm there thinking, these people still spend like $40 million on advertising. That's quite a lot. Um, these people are clearly going to be smart people that actually have a lot of interest in doing good work that grows their brands. Like clearly we could actually try and do some sort of arrangement to negotiate our fee based on a percentage of equity. And yet no one could be bothered to meet these people. And nothing for me is more surprising than that. I think I agree totally. But you see that people like Gin Lane have turned from being an agency into a sort of holding company for sort of D2C brands. Yeah, we seem to, I don't know why they did that. It's not like they just got bored or something. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just like they look more fun <laughs> on the other side. But I think that whole D2C space is fascinating. I think that is a petri dish of advertising going forward. Because those guys have yes. got a better handle on, I did this and I sold more of those or less of yeah. those. And if you can get involved in that and demonstrate you're bringing some real value, then, yeah, you can get to share in the upside of that, which is fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I, I completely agree. I, mean, I don't want this to be misconstrued as big companies are idiots and they have no idea what they're doing and all these thrusting young companies are geniuses who are absolutely amazing at everything they do. Because many big companies are actually just in really difficult situations where they have to deal with legacy infrastructure and their cost base is high and they have things like laws that they have to stick to. Um, and I don't want it to be misconstrued as me being down on those people. And at the same time, there are lots of DCC companies that are losing vast amounts of money with really stupid business models. And all they seem to be is quite wealthy, privileged people that pay Red Antler or Gin Lane lots of money to design a nice logo. And they lose money for five years and they hope to get bought by Nordstrom or something <laughs> at some point. The amount of people selling £5 notes for £4.50 yeah. and hoping they'll make it with volume. No, so Those I don't, I don't want this to be kind of simplistic. But at the same time, the, the notion that we should be looking back at the past, the notion where we should be looking at media spend as if that's interesting to us as an agency is nuts and what i think we really have to do and i'm sounding like i'm on my kind of high horse a little bit but if we think about our job being to understand people and to understand uh, creativity and to be aware of technology and to be rooted in business and business models and then we can help us proactively suggest ideas or um, reactively solve problems that companies have and do so knowing that if you provide value, you can charge for it. And there are many fascinating problems right now. So how do retailers start to compete with e-commerce companies um, when probably their whole systems have not been set up yeah. to deliver? Um, how do CPG companies or FMCG companies um, compete with direct-to-consumer startups that appear to be happy to lose money? Uh, how does a fast food restaurant that now realizes its experience and its kind of brand is more uh, based on the Deliveroo driver or the packaging that the food comes in than it is based on the experience you have in the store? These are amazing problems. Uh, I met someone the other day from a quite a small uh, food company that told me in a very embarrassed fashion uh, that they had no presence outside of London online. They had a crappy uh, app. Sorry, they had no app and a crappy website. And they kind of uh, meekishly told me that they only sold £7 million worth of their products online. And they tried to get a meeting with an ad agency and they wouldn't meet them because they didn't spend enough on media. And I'm thinking, you could make £10 million of extra revenue next year just by an app and a bit of you know, sensible kind of search engine optimization or something. So I think what you describe me, I, I'm you know, a little bit less in touch with this than you are, and I'm being less diplomatic than you are. We, you know, with clients, the thing is really find smart people at a business and you can do work with them. Yeah. You know, whereas a big legacy business with lots of problems or a little small, smart people is great, you can work with them. If they're not smart, if they're arseholes, 
you're never going to make any money at all. But people don't have that distinction. I always had the thing, if people talk in the meeting about you being a vendor, it's like, I think I'm probably a pretty rubbish vendor. I'm quite a good partner, perhaps, but the vendor, I'm probably pretty crap. And, you know, I think agencies don't apply that. You know, the law of $100 million means spend, or we'll put up with that. Yeah. And it's much interesting. Solve those problems and create proper value is... is much more fun and we're going to be a lot more lucrative it seems quite logical I mean I, I, I live in fear that someone's going to listen to a podcast like this and write to me really articulately and explaining to me quite why I'm wrong and saying that actually no you know this billion dollar account that now is down to 100 million that's full of stressed out marketers that have no idea what they're doing this is a reason to work on that and the reason to work on, you know, some company that's growing threefold every year is actually, you know, full of all of these reasons why not to do that. And, and um, I, actually, I don't live in fear of that because I'd like to read it because I'd like to learn and it's nice to be wrong and to learn. But it just seems so obvious to me that we need to go about things in a radically different way. And I do speak quite a lot to various publishers, agencies about this. And most people kind of nod and most people uh, definitely agree with this. And then about... 5% of the audience will hang around afterwards and be like, you're totally right, we need to totally do this. And I think we're kind of on the cusp of actually getting this and actually just being like, screw it, let's do it. I think you can now go to a small business that, you know, who don't have that sort of idea of, I've got to you know, appoint someone who's got you know, offices in 100 different countries. Yeah. You know, who can help me solve my problems now? Who can take a sort of more holistic view of my business and point out my problems with my cart yeah. at the same time as telling me I should spend more on Facebook and less on TikTok or whatever? From yeah. It's having that wider remit. And the agency world has sort of marshaled itself into ever small units with, okay, I only deal with this stamp over here on the big picture. I think that, you know, it feels like people have realised you need to bounce back from that and make some steps towards it. And that booming DTC economy allows you to have a palette to play on play like that. I think so. I mean... Um one one piece of reality that I'm aware of, because um, I do feel like I sound quite naive quite often, um, I think when companies get really big for a long time, in order to sell lots of stuff, they needed to employ lots of people. And then every time some new kind of technology or some new philosophy or some new tactic has come along, they felt it necessary to build out a department that does that. And therefore, um, I think it was Unilever about four years ago, I remember reading that they had, I think, like 250 creative agencies around the world. Yeah. And they had like over a thousand agency partners all over the world. And therefore, it made me realize that this complexity exists on both sides. So we, we are quite sort of uh, specialized, but then we have specialized clients. And therefore, by the time an agency gets a phone call, like the way that the problem is going to be solved has already been decided. Because if you're a PR agency based in Peru and the PR contact phones you up in Peru, the solution is probably going to be a PRS strategy in Peru. Yes. Like it's probably not going to be a product reformulation or to open up a Chinese office or something. Um, and I think that one of the things that we have to be aware of on the client side is that um, the people that we speak to are often not given the responsibility or don't have the ambition to solve products uh, problems yeah. at the altitude that we'd like to suggest. And I don't really know how to deal with that because the, the really exciting things that could be done now are often things that span lots of different departments. Um, so if you randomly give me um, a, a company or a category. Let, let, let me Ford. Try. Ford. Okay, that's a good one. So let's assume that Ford have realized that the way that people now buy vehicles is such that MPG is quite important 
the feeling of the leather is quite important, but actually it's really the in-car entertainment system. Uh, like it's, it's really their ability to navigate using maps. That, that, yeah. That's probably, I think it's actually true. I think it's actually either the first or the second most important thing in a car now is the electronics within it. Not the quality of the speakers, um, but the kind of user experience of them. Now, as an ad agency, to go to Ford and say, look, you've told us to sell more cars to young people. And the in-car entertainment is actually a very crucial part of that. The only real way we can operate is to come up with a media plan based on reaching young people. Maybe yeah. do a sort of sponsorship of, um, you know, Lady Gaga. Yeah. <laughs> I sound old now, I don't know. Uh, think of Drake's uh, new tour. Maybe do like a sort of... Uh, a competition where uh, there'll be like some dealership where Drake appears. We'll do some like behind the scenes content that you get. Um, like, and it'll be an advertising campaign about how good the in-car yeah. entertainment system is. What really needs to happen is someone needs to go to Ford and go, this touchscreen is absolutely awful. Like every single person that's ever sat in this car hates this touchscreen because there's no haptic feedback and you need some buttons. And actually, um, like you really shouldn't be trying to develop your own proprietary system because it's shit. Uh, and actually, you know, both iOS, uh, both CarKit and Apple uh, and uh, the Google version of this are really good. But why don't you try and persuade them to create a proprietary app called the Ford um, Spontaneous Event App? And what happens is every time you're driving along in the car and you get a little bit bored or you arrive at your destination a little bit more quickly, you press this button and it shows you some kind of event that you might be interested in. And it links to Apple Pay and it buys you your ticket and it's a seamless experience. Now, there is no way on earth that anyone that we might reasonably speak to at Ford would be able to work across yeah. the kind of the in-car entertainment people and the service design division and the head of innovation and the person whose job it is to do bug testing and their product roadmap would be such where there's no way this is going to happen for five years. And that's a really good example of, of why we can't do this excellent stuff. And I'm kind of getting to the point now where I'm like, I don't really care how hard it is. Like, unless you can actually do this stuff, um, like, you need to figure out a way to be able to work in this space. So two things. One, not to believe we just did that impromptu because that was brilliant analysis to board. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> but um, I think you know, the offer of um, a Deloitte, essentially, who can talk to a CEO because yeah. they're talking to them about other things more important than marketing. Yes. Because they can do that. The marketing yes. thing's been struck down because the marketing, what are we doing again? We're buying TV ads again. It's ten million pounds. Did they work? We don't know, but we're going to spend a bit more on this year. Okay, off you go. Yeah, that's not a, you know a board conversation. Yeah. So the consultant is who are no better equipped to do this than agency. I don't think they've got the they're far worse equipped. But they have to have that conversation. Yeah. But one interesting thing, I found the um, Titanium Lion winner this year, the Whopper campaign for Burger King. Yeah. FCB came up with the idea. Didn't work in Burger King. Found a way to get to people at Burger King, got to see and sold the idea in, yeah. and then found the technology part to make it work from there. So some people still do actually go out there with a big idea and make it happen, but that is the exception. It really is exception, and I know Fernando Mercado quite well, and he's absolutely amazing, and he he loves this stuff. Yeah, and uh, if you ever meet him, within about sort of two minutes, it's very clear that he's very different. And I don't think I'm saying anything that's confidential. Um, but a lot of the stuff that he wants to do is brilliant and kind of nuts. Like his ambitions are to do things that involve quite a lot of capital expenditure in a way that you could never justify with mathematics. Um, but when he tells you this stuff, you're like, shit, that's an amazing idea. 
And it's a very, very unusual situation he's got. And again, I'm hoping I'm not being too, uh, I'm hoping I'm not oversharing, but it's obviously a franchise driven business. Uh, and it's obviously very hard to get franchisees to invest in this stuff. But he's done such a good job and he's created so much fame. And people who now own franchises and franchises and work for Burger King are now so proud to work there. That he's basically created an environment where whatever he wants, they're prepared to do because they know that they can trust him and he's brilliant. But and that's what needs to happen. That's an amazing achievement. We worked on Burger King in the UK 10, 12 years ago. We had yeah. a Monday morning meeting. We'd go through what's happening at the agency or whatever. The guy who ran the Burger King would always be a bit distracted because he got a text at 10 to 9 <laughs> with the last week figures year on year, yeah. up or down, whatever from there. And he would come in and say, on the dot, you know, he would get that, as would every franchisee and everyone else. Yeah. Whatever. If it was up on last week, last week was up on year on year, relax and carry on with the meeting, it was all great. If it was down, he would leave because the phone calls out five minutes later, advertising rubbish, we need to do something, whatever. And there yeah. was knee-jerk reaction to that. Yeah. I think you can take really smart ideas like that yeah. and make them work with, in terms of huge attention. One of the line, fantastic. But the cost of the app download has shrunk compared to what it would have cost. Absolutely. You've now got an app on you know, everyone's smartphone on the front page of that with your bit of branding from there. Yeah. It's a genius. You, you, it pays for itself in loads of different ways yeah. if you think outside the, you know, the normal mathematics. Absolutely. I mean, I think I don't want to miss an opportunity to lay into management consultants. And, <laughs> and as we move on, I'm, I'm sort of worried that I might not... Uh, get this opportunity again and I'm, I'm kind of smirking I'm smirking while I'm saying it because I'm not actually a dick but um, I'm aware that management consultants and these kind of digital agencies that in theory are stealing our best people but they're really not and in theory they're smarter than us and they're really not and in theory like we should be envious of them and we kind of should be but for different reasons like they are the people that have the kind of apocryphal uh, meetings with the CEOs yeah. and they're the people that get paid tons of money um, and they are the most boring people who solve problems in the most boring conventional ways you will ever meet. And I mean that with a lot of respect, obviously. Um, but the reality is that most of the things that that really pay off involve the magic of an idea. Like I think technology is almost like a multiplier. But I think uh, ideas, it sounds very fluffy, actually. I think ideas are kind of like an exponential power number where the ability just to do something which is so clever that it means so much, and it probably costs quite a small amount of money to implement, um, that's the business that we should be in. And I'm so aware of how boring most solutions are. I mean, Rory Southern is amazing at yeah. this because he talks about kind of empathy and the way you can solve problems in a imaginative way. I've just had a lovely lunch with David Webby. Uh, and he talks a lot about the kind of uh, the value of ideas yeah. and the sort of idea economy. And I think we really, really, really suffer because everything that we can't really explain why it works, we feel like somehow we should be embarrassed about. And everything that seems to come from a weird process that's somewhat magical, we presume must be wrong. And people follow these very linear, boring, expensive um, processes to come up with boring solutions. And because they're logical and they're expensive and they were linear, we do dumb things like, you know, whether it's high-speed rail systems yeah. or whether it's kind of like database migration projects that don't really work. Like, we, we love expensive things somehow. Rory's very eloquent about that because, yeah, he's the only guy in advertising who's invented a new product in the last 40 years, yeah. behavioral sort of thinking around that. But he talks very well in his book about, you know, the idea that people want to be able to measure things. Do we have an idea? Oh, I'm going to sort of get people to download an app outside the company. What are you talking about? You know, people don't, find that easy to work with the consultants i've heard a good story what i essentially have been doing is buying very good creative agencies like droga yeah. like karma 
And so one of the ways they work, the guys at these agencies will get a phone call from somebody. I'm Fred Bloggs from Accenture. You Google him at the time. He's a senior vice president at Accenture. You never heard of him before. Yeah. I'm working with client X. I've saved them £20 million on the digital transformation. And we've agreed that a third of that can be spent on growth. What could you do without to grow the business? Yeah. So that sounds quite promising that you know, smart talent is getting a budget to do that. We haven't seen results of that yet because I think that's you know, relatively new. So maybe that's the way they can prove that they have an advantage. Yeah. But it still requires picking the best talent from creative agencies or advertising agencies yeah. and you know, deploying that in a slightly different way. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to either sound like a good corporate citizen that's going to blow publicists' trumpet in a way that makes this seem... Um, sort of editorially biased and I don't want to be artificially mean about companies in a way that seems vicious but I think this idea that somehow a group of people that look like Accenture people that have been recruited to work at Accenture and who have like dress codes and have posters about what they can and can't do in the office I think this idea that you can kind of buy Droger 5 uh, and then like somehow these two things will um, merge together like it's I don't know it's kind of like having a blue whale and a chicken and then thinking that if they can just have sex then you'll have something that kind of flies and is massive and huge chickens don't even fly do they um <laughs> not very good at animals um I mean we would we would be idiotic if we didn't think that's one of the hardest integration projects ever known and I think what's highly likely a bit like they did with Fjord really is they'll they'll run these things as kind of portfolio businesses so yeah. they'll there'll be a kind of creds deck where the two things come together and there'll be a meeting where like the people sit together and the Accenture people will wear kind of common project shoes for the day and the Droga 5 people will pick out the one shirt that they know from a direct to consumer shirt brand um, but I don't, I don't think it's really going to work because it's probably going to be in service of the, the kind of creative agency is almost like the uh, the sort of calling card to try and suck people into a much bigger, expensive uh, digital transformation project. Like I, th- I think the idea here is that they take this is just me speculating, but I think they, the, the current clients of Drogify they'll try and suck into Accenture. I don't think Accenture have really got that much more interest in selling advertising to their clients, uh, and I don't think that's the right way to go about it. What we're trying to do, which I probably can't say that much about, but like we are really trying to bring together sapient people and people from Search yeah. and Search and people from BBH and people from publicist communications and fad on so ever and we're trying to get them to like hang out with each other and work on the same clients for a long period of time and it's actually not really a cross-selling exercise it's a kind of cultural uh exchange where we're just trying to realize that there is something remarkable about advertising people like our ability to just be a bit weird and our ability to be comfortable with ambiguity and our ability to manage change and to live in sort of uncertain times is quite remarkable uh, and I come from that world. And I meet people from Sapien, and they're brilliant in ways that I can't imagine. Like, they're so thorough, and they're so robust, and they're so wonderful at execution. And they're so smart, but in ways that are very different. And the more time you spend with these people, the more that you realize they learn crazy amounts from us. I mean, not me, but other people. And I learn, and we learn crazy amounts from them. And you start to realize that the longer that you spend sort of being together and working towards a common goal like you realize how much the design of a mcdonald's um, digital kiosk can learn from a strategic planner from an advertising agency 
But similarly, if someone from an advertising agency will learn what a sapient approach would be to advertising. And by spending time together and working together on one P&L, like it, like a, we haven't quite got to a point where it's seamless, but we've got to a point where it's working. I think it's one of those cliches, and it? it used to be great when agencies were full service, but I'm old enough, I remember that. Yeah. I worked with Rory at Ogilvy Direct. <laughs> I was on strategy. <laughs> He's a creative, a copywriter, a media people. But you would talk to people in the corridors about ideas from that, and you have those conversations, and know you can suggest something, and someone's going to give it some credit, rather than the media guy just had a creative idea, turn off off and vice versa yeah yeah you know, once you can get that sort of conversation going then things come from there because if you did that oh really okay you know and that's sort of magic getting those people together yeah so I think if you can ferment that it's quite powerful yeah where the, when I, my time at wpp was i learned very quickly that basically nice over until the money came out and then you fought like dogs <laughs> over it and you kill or be <laughs> killed uh, i'm sure it's not quite like that now but if you can get an organisational structure where you talk to a lot of different people, yeah. and against agency people, that great thing, especially sort of the planner side of it, I think where we sit, understanding what different people's skills and knowledge is, yeah. and try and find a way of synthesising that together. I think there are two things that appear to be um, helpful and give me a sign that this could work. Uh, and I've worked on quite a few one client team projects in the past i mean it really was vicious like, yeah you can be under the same holding company if anything that makes it worse because it's a bit like having a fight with uh, your sibling where you feel like it's actually more sort of okay to punch them or something um not that i've got any sisters that are punched um <laughs> i think uh wasn't it like the first thing that can help a lot it's not the answer to everything but one PL. yeah um like that's just essential because if everyone gets bonused on on P and L and you're on the same one, then you are literally trying to take money from each other. That, that seems to help an awful lot. And the other thing is realizing that when people do things in a fundamentally different way, that there's probably something interesting about that. And when I do, you know, I've worked in quite a few digital agencies now, and you see that they do weird things like, um, I don't know, they think about who to invite to a meeting before they send out the meeting invite. Like, I know that's crazy shit, but they'll, they'll, have, they'll have an agenda and um, <laughs> they have to fill in timesheets the nearest five, 15 minutes, which I don't like, but it does make people start to think about the value of the time. Um, they'll start to do things like know when to use like real-time chat apps to talk to each other, whether it's like Slack or Yammer or whatever. Um, and they'll have a culture where, you know, there'll be uh, production and, and the sort of tempo of, of delivery will be really important. So there'll be a kind of robustness to your thought. Um, you know what, you know what, let me jump in there. But yeah. I think that's because, yeah, they work out these meetings have got a function in the process of doing stuff. Exactly. Kind of efficient. On the other side, and I'm slagging agents off, I don't mean to, but a lot of times meetings happen to create work for people that will be billed against a client. So you need to have four <laughs> status meetings a week with 12 people, because that's 48 hours that yeah. you to the client. I, I don't know, if it, I, I haven't experienced an environment that felt quite that way, but that may be very true. I mean, for me, meetings just seem like a chance for everyone to have a nice chat. I mean, every single meeting that I've ever had in, in recent history um, has mainly been people that just wanted to talk about each other's weekend. And if you were the person that had the audacity to try and drive the agenda, you'd feel like you're a bit of a loser for kind of working too hard or something. And, and again, you, you work in, 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 uh, in digital agencies and because they are driven not by the amount of time they spend on their business, but what they produce. Yes. Like when you work for a digital agency, you feel like you work for a construction company. So it's kind of your job to go through the process of making something. And every day you get to see progress on that journey. And it's quite sort of linear and rational. And um, it doesn't tend to, to take on lots of new iterations. It tends to get fixed and then built. 
Uh, and when you work for a kind of creative agency, you kind of feel a bit like you're in the architecture business where it's kind of your job to, you know, go and do some uh, new drawing at night and to go around uh, the new wing of the latest modern art gallery. And it's your job to kind of just be imbued in sort of design and creativity and wonder. Uh, and actually, we need those two things to work together. Like, uh, they're both wonderful things. Like, construction is much better yeah. if there's an architect who understands what uh, the material properties of steel are. Uh, but also construction, it's much better when they understand that it's not really a boring process of making a building for $1,000 a square feet. It's actually about the creation of wonder and it's about creating spaces that feel magical. Um, I use that analogy quite a lot. So, yeah. Frank Gehry, there's a T-shirt you can buy at the Guggenheim in Bilbao, which is a squiggle. Yeah. Like, but, you know, when you look at it, it looks like the building that's built. Yeah. He knew that people like Ovarab could take that and make that happen yeah. because technology's moved on from there. Yeah. So the ability of creative people to understand, okay, I've got a great idea and I know what's possible. Yes, exactly. It's genius. And back to your point, you know, these creative people looking on TikTok and Snap and watching this stuff, you know, and there are people out there, who, you know, doing that, probably not in established agencies, but smaller agencies or whatever, are learning what the memes are on TikTok to tell an idea in 10 seconds or whatever, yeah. and what bits of culture you can play around with from yeah. there. Um, they're not trying to turn it into a 30-second TV spot. Yeah. They're just, you know, it will exist in an Instagram ad or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's probably a very good, expo- uh, not explanation, it's a very, a very good introduction into why it is that we need to get much better at working together. So, you know, in, in broadly speaking, there are kind of almost three units that need to get much closer at the moment. One is the, the creative department, one is the, the media side, and the other is the kind of digital stroke, digital t- transformation bit. And when those three things come together, that's when amazing stuff will happen. And the reason why I think it will be is because we know how to do everything that's at the centre of our industry. We kind of know how to make a TV ad. We can probably just about make a six-second video ad, but it'll be all right. Uh, we know how to make an app. We know how to make an e-commerce website. Like It's all quite standard. It's going to be the weird things around the edges. It's going to be the advising of a to a publisher of how they can make money from affiliate marketing by owning their own uh, commerce platform. It's going to be... Uh, advising a car company on what it should feel like to be in a car in the modern age or advising them on the business model for how they can think about uh, monetization if self-driving cars ever become a thing. It's going to be looking at a company that owns hotels and saying how could we kit out this lobby with digital screens and then monetize um, people's attention in that space using advertising that actually your guests quite like. Um, All of the stuff that's going to be fascinating um, is going to be around the edges. It's going to be looking at what is, uh, you know, in the world of 5G or even with existing Wi-Fi, when we start to stream TV, that means we have very rich real-time data and addressable data about where people are and what they're doing. That means we can make new forms of TV ads. All of the stuff that's fascinating and all of the stuff which is um, both exciting and highly profitable to everyone is all stuff that lives at the intersections of those areas. Um, and that's why the more that we can bring these people together, the better. I think that's really true. And it, you know, I like you started optimistic. To me, it feels like it's a very exciting time. Yeah. This stuff is now mass market. So if you get something right, everyone can be using it. You yeah. Know, in these market developing markets as well. Yeah. Everyone who's economically important has a smartphone now. Yeah. You know, so there's a huge scale. And the thing we all talk to clients about is if you get good at this stuff, yeah. there's a real competitive advantage. Because the chances are your rival bank, your rival car company, your rival hotel company is a bit shit like most people are. So for the first time for a long time, you can actually draw ahead of those people just by taking advantage of these new opportunities but i i hope you get there because my main um my main concern i guess would be that 
when you speak to a big bank, they benchmark themselves against other big banks. Uh, and it's almost the an environment where, I mean, it's almost a bit like sort of uh, price uh, fixing on airlines where they yes. all collude to be um, anti-consumer by fixing prices. Like, I'm not actually suggesting that actually happened for legal reasons on here. And I'm not actually <laughs> suggesting that banks look at each other and go, let's all be as shit as each other in a kind of overt way. But generally speaking, industries compare themselves only within their category. Yeah. And they compare themselves with the past as well. So HSBC, which I'm sure is a kind of our somewhere in a lovely bank, um, they will take uh, vast amounts of pleasure from the fact that their app is probably one of the best ones right now in banking. And it's better than it used to be. Yeah. And actually what companies really need to do is think, right, what does every single digital experience that's vaguely like banking look like? And I don't mean Venmo or Swish or Klarna. I mean, like, let's look at Uber. Like, there's something kind of sexy about that user flow. Um, let's look at a... Uh, and there was an app called Maple in New York that used to sell sort of beautiful food and amazing packaging. Like, they should just be looking at every single experience in the world and using that for inspiration. And then they should also just be looking at possibilities. So if I'm a bank today, I'm thinking, wait a minute, like, you know, couldn't we... Uh, can we have all of our transactions entirely searchable? So every single transaction you've ever done from now should be kept. Like, shouldn't we be able to use metadata so that you can do searches for food or you can figure out how much money you've spent um, in this uh, postcode or you can figure out what your velocity of spending is? Um, couldn't you actually get to a point where you bring in other transactions from other people's credit cards into that so you can become the dashboard for everyone's personal finance? Wait a minute, if you do that, if you bought an Apple Watch, like why don't you become the place that remembers when the Apple Watch was bought and then sends you a reminder one year later when your guarantee or warranty or whatever it's called is about to expire? And wait a minute, if we have that data, couldn't we then sell that data to Samsung and say their watch is now expired? Like that bit of data is actually worth a lot of money to Samsung. So why don't we use that as an opportunity in a beautiful way for Samsung to say, you have an Apple Watch like this one's slightly better for this reason. Um, and that might be quite helpful for the person that's now aware that their Apple Watch is a bit old. Then you can become the place that actually uh, all of the instruction manuals for the, the home electronics that you bought become stored on this website. And then all of a sudden, when you don't think about what how crap the online experience used to be, and instead you think about how wonderful this place can be, you suddenly start realizing how incredibly exciting this is. And again, without talking too crassly about money, you realize that actually that would be amazing as a consumer. To be a consumer that just knows that my bank has every single subscription service that I subscribe to, and actually I can monitor my use of the New York Times through it and see if actually I should cancel it because I've used it too much. And then maybe I should sell that as an advertising space to the spectator because if I cancel the New York Times, maybe I'll get the spectator. This is great for consumers. Like It's great for the bank. It seems to work well for everyone, but no one seems to be thinking that way. Is that very, you know, why do bank statements look like you know that on your app long list of transactions? Because that's what was on the paper statement. Yeah. Which is what used to be in the book when you had the book. Yes, it's just it used uh, to be kept on the bit like card a in the bank before. on a digital screen yeah. of what it used to be. But here's you know here's your, you know, a pie chart of what you spent last month. You know so your spending on entertainment is up five percent, food down three percent, rent's about the same. Yeah. yeah. Useful information. Yes, we click on it and we'll go show all the transactions. Yeah. I don't need to see the long list of stuff. With contact list, it's like a million little twenty pound, ten pounds here. <laughs> yeah. But show me something interesting. Just take you, you know, my job is to help me make the most of money not just you collect it yeah and you those conversations have gone on we've talked to banks about that and no one ever seems to do it from there and i think yeah. you do have the revolute now 
their models are starting to do those sorts of things. But in a way, a lot of them just a simpler way of. I was going to say, like. I, I um, half of me looks at things like Revolut, and I'm like, this is amazing. And obviously, I talked a bit about Monzo before. Yeah. Like, isn't this great that we're starting to see what can be done? And this will only be a force for good because this is going to make everyone more ambitious in this space. And then there's about half of me that's quite worried because I think if people really think that Revolut, which I'm sure is a great company. Um, if people really think that's the gold standard, I'm a bit worried because actually Revolut reminds me a bit of something like the new Apple credit card. Where yeah. It's kind of like a really nice um, sort of user interface that's still dropped on what is quite an archaic system. Yeah. And that there's not that much more ambition to Revolut. Like Revolut doesn't do that much more than a bank does. Like I really want this to be, you know, quantified health for my money where... Um, you know, it becomes the dashboard that I use to understand everything. Maybe I could go on it and it will show me all of the food that I own. Like I'll yeah. I, I, I get recipe suggestions because uh, my bank statement is able to pull in all of the itemized thing that I bought from Fresh Direct. But I think you're right. I think I have this, you know, slight worry that, you know, look at Revolut, you know, Uber, WeWork. You've got lots of big businesses which you look at as this fantastic digital economy yeah. where they've built a business model that doesn't make any money. Yeah. So Uber is predicating the idea that if, Driverless cars come to get rid of the drivers and <laughs> yeah. might make some money. So without that, they're not going to do that. Yeah. WeWork's got its own problems. Revolut is fantastic. They shave all the transaction charges. So I'd save a fortune when I'm traveling. I don't pay yeah. it. But at some point, they're going to have to try and work out how to make some money. And the moment they charge me £20 a, a year to have it, I'll go to somebody else from there. Yeah. So VCs are funding these businesses. Yeah. And we're benefiting. But at some point, that show will stop. Yeah. Um, and you're right. that They're not really going into some fantastic new value proposition no. that I would pay my bank 10 quid a month because they help me manage my money by being very clever. They throw up these opportunities of you know handling all my receipts and whatever from there. Yeah. It's I think I don't understand the UK thing about um, PPI. So yeah. why did I have to apply to the bank to get PPI and find out when the bank knows they sell me PPI? Yes. You know, the bank have this knowledge and data leave people I said they could use that yeah, as a positive side yeah. imagine service. how much you love your bank I mean your bank just becomes the thing that did paperwork for you and gave you money yeah. um, and looked to take care of your interests I think um, it, it, I don't, I'm not really a big fan of, of regret and I'm not a big fan of blame but I think sometimes it's useful to put blame on things because it means you can figure out what to change and I think um, every business thinks they're in the industry that they've always been in so if you're a gym, you think you're in the business of having a space with um, gym equipment in it. If you are a bank, you think you're in the business of keeping people's money safe, paying them a bit of interest, yeah. and then hopefully trying to flog them some travel insurance. Um, if you're you know, a retailer, you think you're in the business of selling people um, you know, sort of newspapers and ice creams and stuff. I think there's a job to be done. Oh, that's quite an appropriate expression. There's a job to be done, which is actually to move higher up that value chain. And if you, you know, you can't move sort of so high up. I know in advertising we have this funny thing that yeah. we think we should all have chocolate biscuits that stand for world peace or something. But if you move up to a slightly more appropriate level, so if Netflix realized they weren't in the business of posting out DVDs, they were in the business of rewarding your attention with something interesting and entertaining, and that allowed them to go into a different place. So if your bank realizes it, its new role is not to be... Um, the store of your money, but it's actually to look after your financial well-being, that's when it does something like that. 
if your gym realizes it's not in the business of owning gym equipment it lets you use it's actually in the business of monitoring your physical and mental health then all of a sudden they can own you know therapy and all of a sudden they can send personal trainers to your house to shout at you for eating a scone <laughs> at the wrong time like all of a sudden that the ability of these places to make money is actually um, increased dramatically because they're able to take a bigger role in your life. Well, you did a, uh, a great um, talk with Seth Godin the other week. And Seth, you know, <laughs> fantastic guy. Yeah. But one of the things he talked about, if you're going to try and find customers for your product, that's a problem. If you're yes. trying to find products for your customers, so if you're a bank, I've got five million customers, what could I do to make their lives better? And if exactly. I do that, they won't be at Monitor next week. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I kind of, um, I don't really understand why this isn't... Uh, kind of printed out in some sort of form of Bible-like literature that's given to all agencies where, um, like, media is really important and uh, media will only ever be more important and brands are vital and therefore this isn't to remove something from that. But it's a lot easier to listen to people and to use that to make better products than it's ever been before. And I think a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, like we celebrate how sexy it is that they're online or how nice their Instagram ads are. But what a few of them, not all of them, but a few of them have done really well is actually really understand what people want and then just make something that people want. And then it turns out if you make something that people want, you can, you can sell it quite fast without spending a ton of money on media. So I think that's right. I think it feels like that's a good optimistic point to, you know, Pause our conversation. <laughs> and we should do a part two from there. But, you know, I think it's really interesting. That, you know, I, by your cynicism, your grumpiness, and my that <laughs> totally. But we also re recognise there's so much better more to be done, and that's what's exciting, isn't it? The chance to go and do that better stuff from there. Exactly. I have this really cheesy thing that I, I sort of uh, end some of my presentations on, and I feel quite embarrassed being this cheesy, but. I do believe it to be true. And the first thing is that I genuinely think that if you offer people the choice to live in the past or to live in the future or to live in the far future or to live right now, you know, even with kind of Brexit and um, social media driving people crazy, like this probably still is the best time to be alive that we yeah. could ever really imagine. And then if you actually think about the industries that most people listening to this work in, you know, most of us are probably not in a chicken factory sort of killing chickens at weekends. Like we're probably not... Um, stressed out of our brains driving people around in Ubers in our spare time. Like most of us are not CEOs that um, are having existential crises and worried about uh, currency exchange rate fluctuations and trying to figure out what to do about Brexit. Most of us have actually got really nice jobs. Like yeah. Most of us work in an industry that involves working with really nice people, um, solving problems in really imaginative ways. That doesn't mean everything's perfect, but I think the combination of this moment in time and working in a really exciting industry and then when those two things come together, I think that should make us all feel a bit more happy than we sometimes do. And seize the opportunity. Great way. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for your time. My thank pleasure. you very much. Thank you very much.